Okay, before I get to my next guest, John Mahaffey, I want to talk to you about our new friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. All right, now back with me. Here on Next on the Tee is 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey. Let me remind you about John's background. He's from Kerrville, Texas. Played his college golf at the University of Houston, where he was named a first-team All-American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship, and he helped the Cougars win back-to-back national championships in 69 and 70. He earned his degree in psychology and he was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1976. John turned pro in 1971, and he won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including the 1978 PGA Championship, when he came from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. He also won the 1986 Players' Championship. He won once out on the Champions Tour. He was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team, In 1983, he was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. He's written a couple of wonderful books. The first one, Hogan's Boy, A a Journey in Golf, plus a new mystery novel titled Shafted. Both you can get out there on Amazon.com. John has become a wonderful friend of the show, and I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next Down the Tee. Hey, John, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, great to be back with you. Tell you what, you guys are awesome. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) I appreciate you. John, we're just a little over a week north of this year's Players' Championship, which, like I said, you won back in 1986. And when I was looking back at that leaderboard, it was a veritable who's who of PGA legends near the top. Larry Mize either had the outright lead or a share of it for the first three rounds, but there were guys lurking like Tim Simpson, Tom Kite, Hal Sutton, Raymond Floyd, Jim Thorpe, Lee Trevino, Lanny Watkins, Payne Stewart. And Bob Murphy, the, those guys were all right there. Talk about having to chase down Mize, particularly over the last few holes, and what it was like trying to outdistance yourself from a leaderboard like that. Well, the the thing that helped me more than anything else is I had a terrific round on Saturday. I shot 65 to even get close. Uh, and then coming into Sunday, uh, it's a funny thing. I was sitting in the locker room with a buddy of mine. You know, he said, I, I got a feeling. And I said, what's that? He said, well. You know, what are you going to do if you get to the 18th hole and you're tied for the lead, you're one back or one up? What are you going to, what kind of tee shot? And you got the honor. What are you going to do? 
And I said, well, you know, that whole kind of hard, that's a hard driving hole for me because my go-to shot is a little low cut, you know, kind of tee it low and, and just hit a little bullet out there and a little left to right shot. But if I really wanted to make a statement, I'd step up there and hit a big draw. So lo and behold, uh, Larry Mize ran into a little trouble coming in. I think he made a bogey or a double at, at 16 and I made a birdie. I knocked it on it too. And he missed a, a makeable birdie putt at 17 and we ended up being tied. Uh, going to the 18th tee, and uh, I remember sitting there, and I, I looked over at my caddy, and I, I always teed off on the right side of the tee box because that was, you know, it helped me hit the fade. And I went over to the left side, looked at me kind of funny, and uh, set up with it, and then I kind of closed my stance a little bit, and I kind of, I kind of said a little prayer. I hit the most beautiful draw <laughs> I've ever hit in my life. It was a hot bullet draw that went around that corner and down there in miles because it hit a down slope and caught that and ran down it only had a six iron and six iron in there against the wind so uh i know that's uh seems like an awful long club for guys that they had sand wedge in there today but that was a pretty big drive at the time and it came at the perfect time probably the best drive i've ever hit in competition and john one of the things that i thought was very telling and i it, when i watched went back and watched the video i mean you and larry Myers had two testers three four foot to win or go into a playoff and he putted first and missed you drained yours and um, when his putt missed, you, you didn't have any expression change whatsoever. It looked like you were, you were focused. You put the ball down, you, you lined it up, stepped up, rolled it in. Do you remember what was going through your mind when his putt missed? And now all of a sudden you got about a three footer to win this thing. Well, the only thing that went through my mind is I've been here before. Uh, I had to make a putt, to, not a little bit longer putt, but a putt to win the PGA in a playoff at Oakmont from about 12 feet, and, you know, I just got up there and I said, all you do here is you pick the line and hit the best putt you can hit. You know, don't take a whole lot of time and now think yourself. Just go ahead, hit a nice solid putt. And I put it right on the spot that I wanted to hit it on and went right in the middle. No big deal. Threw my hat, but it didn't make it into the water like Jerry Payton over <laughs> too. So <laughs> I got to save the visor. But no, I, I didn't really think about it too much. I don't think there was much to think about, you know. It's, uh, you know, this is this is why you play golf and these are the situations that you work your whole life to get into. So it's uh, it's wonderful to live to live them, and to also to come out on top from time to time. It's pretty cool. John, like you mentioned a moment ago, Mize bogeyed 14, 15, and sixteen. Missed a makeable birdie putt on seventeen, and obviously bogeyed then again on eighteen. Could you feel it starting to slip away from him? And did you think, you know what? Hey, if I just play some solid golf here over the last three or four holes, I might have an opportunity to still win this thing. Obviously, like you did there on eighteen. Well, the thing is, Chris, again, going back to Oakmont in 1978, I was seven shots back with 14 holes to play, and I saw what happened there. Watson made a few mistakes. I started, I got a really hot putter, and I hit, I was hitting the ball very well. Uh, I made one miscue on 16, I three-putted, but other than that, played really good golf. So I figured, and I was playing well after shooting 65 at Sawgrass on, on Saturday. Uh, I think I was under par for the day, and, uh, you know, I, I was just kind of hanging around. And, and then all of a sudden, I didn't think about what was happening to him, but I thought about, you know, uh, just trying to birdie, trying to birdie in. I had a big drive at, at 16 and it just caught the, the first cut of the rough on the right. And, uh, I hit a four and knocked it on the green. It came out of there like a bullet. So, and then when he made bogey, I made birdie. I two put it for birdie. So that kind of, that kind of got the juices running. And then you get to 17 and you're standing up there and 
Uh, I know they stole my line this year, by the way. I got to tell you that some guys were talking about it's the shortest par five on tour. I said that all the way back in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in 86. I said, I mean, before that, when we first started playing soccer, I mean, yeah, at uh, TPC. Anyway, you know, you can hit a really good shot there and you can catch a gust of wind one way or the other, or it dies down and, you know, you, you're sunk. So, you know, you just try, I tried to put it in the middle of the green and fade it and it didn't fade too much. And Larry hit a beautiful shot. Uh, right after play, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to two putt, and then he missed, and uh, we know what happened on 18. But uh, wonderful memories. You know, you hate to see that happening to a buddy, but he got his back when he won the Masters a little bit down the road. John, to your point about what can happen there on 17, we saw the winds howling this year in the third round, or at least on Saturday, winds blowing 20 to 40 miles an hour. And I don't know if most people know this or not, but TPC Sawgrass is really just across the street from the ocean. So the winds can really come off the ocean and come and go. Did you ever play in conditions where the winds were blowing like that and then you get up to the tee on 17 and figure out, what the heck am I going to hit here? Well, not necessarily on 17. One year over across the street, as you mentioned, uh, at Sawgrass, uh, I remember playing behind Hubert Green, and I can't remember if it was seven or eight or one of the long par fours dead into the wind. and he hit driver, driver, and he was just posing on his second driver and came up 20 yards short. So, I mean, wow. that's how hard. I, I think Lanny might have won that year at, at, over there. But, uh, you know, you just kind of, a lot of times you just hit the best shots you can hit. Uh, try to keep it under the wind if you can, but, uh, you know, the smartest shot. And uh, even, even if you hit the, hit the perfect shot there, I think that, uh, that hole is awful penal. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> John, going back a couple of years, 1981, as we all start to look ahead to the Masters now, you finished tied for eighth that year. You were three strokes behind Tom Watson going into the final round. What do you remember about that tournament and being right in the thick of it then? Thanks a lot, Chris. That's, that's one of my worst nightmares, okay? <laughs> that and losing two I'm sorry. back to back. I'm glad you brought that up, though. you remember what happened to Ed Sneed there that one year? I do. Where he bogeyed 16, 17, and 18? Well, I had something similar happen, but the, the deal with me was, and I thought that I would be able to control uh, my emotions a little bit more, not get so hyped up, at, at, you know, having won a, a PGA uh, three years prior to that. But I think Augusta has a special kind of kind of pressure that uh, you just, you know, to win at Augusta, the first major of the year and stuff like that, it was just, it was overwhelming. Anyway, I was playing very well. And I come into 16, I just birdied 15. I come into 16, and uh, I remember hitting a six iron, and that pen, pen was in the back. And uh, I flew it over the green and uh, way back, a little bit further back than where Tiger chipped it in from, and didn't get that up and down. Uh, drove it great at 17, hit a great shot right at the flag again at 17, right over the green where you don't want to be. And it, it's all adrenaline. I mean, this is all just stuff that, that I think I'm under control, but I'm not. And plus, I'm hitting it right on the butt. Uh, so I bogey there, 18, drive it right down the, the right side of the fairway, great angle at the flag, fly right over the flag, catches the down slope, runs into the crowd. So I bogey the last three holes to finish eight and didn't hit a bad shot. It's just, it's just I think, that being able to control your emotions, emotions coming into those final holes there, it's really hard to do. It's hard to It's really hard to win the Masters. The way these guys handle that, it's amazing to me. To be multiple winners there, incredible. So how do you do that, John? 
How do you recognize in yourself that the adrenaline is starting to really get going? You're probably going to hit this club longer than you normally do. How do you control that, your breathing, the pressure, all of that sort of stuff to maintain what you're doing and still give your chance to win the golf tournament? Well, I thought I did. That's the whole thing. I probably should hit. I normally would have hit a five iron at 16, but I hit six. So I'm, I'm thinking the adrenaline's there. I didn't, I, seven never, never entered my mind, you know, and I, I hit, uh, I hit at what a seven iron at that 17 or six, eight iron at 17, where I normally would have hit a six, a six or a hard seven. And it went over the greens. Same thing at 18. So I don't know. Uh, uh, at that, I just think to me that the, the pressure that you put on yourself there. And, and I, I think a lot of it went back to, to Ben Hogan, uh, years ago when I first went to Augusta and he gave me a little chart of how to, how to play the golf course and stuff. It really felt like I had a good chance to win there because I had a variety of shots that I could play. And I was, I was a good putter and I had a good short game. And, uh, you know, I always felt like that I should have a chance, and here was my best chance, and I got I got too excited. And I don't know how you control it. I really don't. I think I think it happens to everybody, but there's certain players that are that really are they thrive on that. Uh, I think Hogan did. I think Nicholas did. I think Tiger did. Uh, it's called the zone, and uh, I, I didn't stay in it long enough. A lot of guys stayed in it quite a while. Some of them for a career, and. Uh, they were just, they were able to, to, to take everything in stride. I didn't get ahead of myself. That's normally what happens. You start getting ahead of yourself. Then you start feeling sorry for yourself, things like that. I didn't do any of that. So I thought about it later on, obviously. And I didn't, I don't, I didn't figure I did anything wrong. I just hit it too good. John, let's move on to some happier memories. Among your 10 <laughs> wins Please. On, <laughs> on the PGA Tour. Was the 85 Texas Open? It's coming up here on the tour schedule next week. And as a guy from Texas, that has to rank pretty high on the tournaments that you wanted to win. What was it like getting that win for you? Uh, it was awesome. I tell you, winning the PGA, winning the players was terrific. I mean, that, those are, those are career changers, but something that meant more to me than probably any other tournament, uh, was to win that. And I'll tell you why. When I was a kid, uh, only been playing golf about, oh, maybe two or three years. Uh, I was 13, 14 years old. My uncle got a couple of tickets to go to the Texas Open at Oak, at Oak Hill. All right. So we go. And when we get there, uh, he says, okay, so who do you want to go follow? I said, I want to follow our Arnold Palmer. He's my hero. Now this is before I ever knew anything about Ben Hogan or anything or read his book or anything like that. But I read Golf Digest and all the other books and watched Hogan. I mean, watched, uh, Palmer and everything and, you know, the big charge and all that kind of stuff and hitching up his pants. And I thought, man, this guy hung the moon. I still do, by the way. I think he did. And, uh, so I, we get there and my uncle, you know, kind of rolls his eyes like, Oh my gosh. And, you know, the people are about 10 thick that one going in those, it's a narrow golf course. So trying to get to see Arnold was almost impossible, but he played with two really interesting players. He played with Gene Littler and Chichi Rodriguez that day. So we stayed out there pretty much the whole day. And it was, I mean, it was terrific. I was, if I wasn't hooked before, I got hooked there. And, uh, I found out, or he found, my uncle found out that Kiki was going to put on an exhibition at Pecan Valley, which was not very far away from there, uh, where Julius Boros won the PGA later on in his career. And, uh, so, uh, it was a lot at, at, at night. They had the back nine was light. 
So we went and had some Mexican food, and which we both loved, and then went over there and, and watched this. So now I was totally hooked. Watching T.T. Rodriguez about my size or a little smaller, just being able to bust it out there, I, I, I was totally hooked. And, uh, and fell in love with the Tillinghast design of Oak, of Oak Hills. And, uh, I remember that, that particular tournament, uh, in coming down the final holes. I remember the, uh, the 13th hole at, at Oak Hills is really a tough par three. And the wind was howling that really gusting that day. Tough to figure going in and out of all the oak trees and stuff and hard to judge. And uh, there's water on the left, all the way down the left side at, at 13. And it, it was about 215 yards, and wind was blowing left to right. And I hit a hook right at the hole, uh, and and it just it hung up there in the wind and stuff. And it, it would just end up about five feet. And I made it for birdie. So then I go to 14, and I, I'm kind of looking at the leaderboard, but I'm a little back, and uh, hit it close at uh, 14 and miss it. And as, as I'm walking to 15. I hear this guy in the crowd said, I told you he's choking. He's not going to finish. He's not going there's no way he can win this golf tournament. And I thought, really? Ooh. All right. Watch this. So 15 <laughs> to par five, I'm 30, 15, 30, 16, lift it out on 17 and hit it three feet at 18 to tie Jody Mutt. So that guy kind of gave me, a, gave me a shot in the arm, got me a little ticked off enough to get me to focus again, you know, and, uh, so I, I tied with Jody and, uh, this is the sad part of it. We both part of the first hole. We go to number one, uh, was where the, the playoff started. And, uh, we both hit irons off the tee and then wedges in. We didn't make birdie. And number two, he had the honor. And number two at, at Oak Hills is a little bitty short par three downhill, probably eight or eight or nine irons, seven irons at the winds in your face. And the hole location was right on the front right, right over a bunker. Probably one of the toughest hole locations to get close to. And Jody hit this beautiful shot in there. And a gust of wind catches it and buries in the top left of this bunker. I mean, buried deep. So I just, I'm trying to, I put it in the middle of the green and the wind catches it a little bit and I'm in it about 15 feet. Well, I didn't get the putt for a while because Jody left it in the bunker, then blasted it out, uh, over the green, tipped it back and it was still away. And I, uh, I two putted for my, for my car. And, and I, you hate to win that way because it was just, it was an unlucky break for him. Uh, but I thought he was one of one of the best players we had around for quite a long time with Jody Mudd. John, let's move along to the nineteen seventy nine Ryder Cup team, a year you guys won seventeen eleven. I'm always interested to hear the perspective. Having played in under a lot of pressure in the majors and probably in that Texas Open because you wanted to win it so bad. Talk about what the Ryder Cup pressure is like compared to other tournaments. Well, it was by one and only, sadly, but I, I, I loved having the opportunity to do it. I remember, uh, playing Lee Elder and I was playing the, the alternate shot and, uh, we had our, our plan all mapped out and everything else. And he was going to hit the first tee shot and then it, it worked out good for the par fives that way it felt. So we get up there and, uh, and I'm pretty nervous. They play the Star Spangled Banner and I'm, I mean, I've never represented my country before and I'm scared. And, and so, but I'm up there to give him uh, some support and everything else. And he walks over to me. He says, I can't hit this tee shot. <laughs> I said, what? He said, I can't hit this tee shot. I said, Lee. He said, no, honestly, I cannot hit this tee shot. I said, okay. My caddy's like 150, 200 yards down the fairway in the rough, you know, waiting. So I had to wave him back up. I hadn't even thought about this tee shot. So I get up there and, 
and I, and I hit this thing. I closed my ass going as far as I could and nailed it right down the middle of the fairway. And the poor lead, still the nerves, he hit a bad second. We ended up bogeying the hole. And we never did really click uh, that whole day. And I think it was, it was probably not because he said that, just because it was the nervousness for both of us playing in our first uh, event. And then uh, we got we got beat. And uh, I played with Hale Irwin in my neck. Uh, better ball, I think it was. And uh, we got beat. So I wasn't a very good partner at that time. But I do remember uh, playing Brian Barnes, who beat Nicholas back-to-back. Uh, in one of the Ryder Cups in the sing and uh, yeah, was it the singles? I think so. That's right. Anyway, back back to back, and uh, so I, I did beat him. So I got I got one point, so I didn't I didn't get skunked out of the whole thing. But I it was it was a wonderful thrill at the Greenbrier, and my parents were there, and uh, you know, just one of those one of those dreams that you have, and uh, it was the, the thing that that I loved the most about it was being able to to represent our country. And, and to do it so well. And that was the first time the Europeans played, by the way. So, uh, you know, that was sort of a, a hallmark kind of thing for the Ryder Cup, too. And in that event, like Billy Casper was the captain, but there were a lot of guys that were rookies just like you were in the Ryder Cup. I mean, Gil Morgan, Larry Nelson, Tom Kite, Andy Bean, Fuzzy Zeller, Lee Elder, and Mark Hayes, all Ryder Cup rookies, the only veterans of those kind of matches that you had on the team were Trevino, Irwin, and Lanny Watkins. That had to be tough having that many rookies. Who did you guys lean on for how to deal with what you were about to face? Well, I, I think I think most of us, uh, I never, never really thought about it, Chris, honestly. I mean, we had some, some team meetings and stuff. We played some practice rounds and stuff together. And, you know, there was never any bickering or anything else like that. And Billy came in and said, you know, he came up to me. And said, uh, I'm going to have to sit you out a little bit because I, I just don't think you're on the top of your game. And, you know, I didn't have any issues with that. He was right, you know. And uh, so uh, I just felt like that uh, all these guys are on their way there. And all everybody was playing well. with, And I was playing okay, but not my best. And, uh, you know, you got Lanny in there. And Lanny's the one, you know, he's raw, raw. And he's, I mean, he's tough. And then uh, the other guys, I mean, Trevino. So, I mean, you had those guys that you could spend on. If you had any questions, you could ask them. But, uh, you know, it, uh, I never really thought about it that much. John, let's talk about your book, starting with the first one, Hogan's Boy, which uh, I believe Sam Sneed used to refer to you as. Talk about, so I uh, yeah, talk about how you, how you ended up with that name, how we stuck it on you, and then uh, what people are going to learn when they read the book. Well, I, uh, I played uh, my rookie year. I played with Sam Snead at Sedgefield, which he'd won, I don't know, seven or eight times, whatever. And we played in the last round together. And I was nervous because I'd never played with him before. Uh, uh, so I walked up to the first tee and I introduced myself. And I said, Mr. Snead, I'm John Mahaffey. He said, no, you're not. You're Hogan's boy. I know who you are. And because it, the word had gotten around, Ben Hogan was my mentor and had been for a while. And um, people kind of, they didn't refer to me as that way, but then all the way through the round, he would say, uh, Sam would say something like, Hogan would never try that. Hogan couldn't do this. Hogan couldn't do that. You know, and, uh, I mean, he played beautiful. I love the way God said played and who wouldn't? Uh, we ended up tying for the tournament. So that's how I, I got, uh, I got the name for the book, Hogan's Boy. And 
went later on, uh, JC Sneed became a very good friend of mine when we were playing the senior tour. And when I went to visit him in Virginia at his farm, he said, you want to go see Uncle Sam? I said, sure. So we went around the mountain to see Sam. And it was, sadly, it was, uh, he was pretty close to the time that he passed away. He wasn't in very good shape, but he jumped up off the couch when we came in through this, the screen door. And JC said, hey, hey, Uncle, he says, you remember this guy? He said, oh, hell, that's Hogan's boy. So, you know, I thought wow. that was pretty cool that he would remember all the way back to that. But uh, he took me down and showed me his basement where he had all the golf clubs he'd ever played with and all the Wilson bags and all the animals that he bagged in Africa. And, I mean, it was just my, my life was blessed on the tour with all the people that I knew and, and got to know and that helped me along the way and took me under their wing when they knew I was kind of struggling. So that was I wouldn't trade it for anything. Talk about your new mystery novel, Shafted. What inspired you to write that book? Well, you know, when you travel as much as we did, and uh, when we started flying and stuff like that and more international stuff, I got to where I like I liked mystery books. And uh, so I, I read these mystery novels and stuff like that, and I got to – and the whole thing about the tour, and even playing collegiate golf and stuff like that, when you play for a powerhouse like Houston, you're sort of in a fishbowl. I mean, everybody's watching you and stuff like that. So it's kind of a small fraternity you're in. And all the, you see all the things that happen around you. And uh, all these, by the way, all the things that happen in this book, I didn't do these. Okay, this is fiction. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, uh, you know, but but you have, and, and I'd, have, I'd be looking at something and somebody would uh, be going through this or that or whatever. And I'd say, I wonder, you know, if this is happening or that is happening. So all these scenarios started forming in my mind and I thought well I couldn't play golf anymore uh when I went to the golf channel uh and I worked with them because my hips and everything were so bad and had hip surgery but not to play golf to be able to walk and uh then I, I went uh, to the golf channel I had 15 great years learned a lot about television from a lot of wonderful people uh, Keith Hurston being one of them he's the guy that got me on the golf channel and was my first uh, producer that helped me immensely, uh, and also has been, uh, helpful in the book, uh, sort of deal about giving me some advice and so, so forth and so on. But anyway, I love the 15 years I did that. But then that, that kind of grew to the point where I, I'd had a, I didn't, I was tired of traveling. I'd done it since I was in college and, uh, I had an idea, that, you know what? Maybe I can write this fiction, uh, fiction stuff. I majored in psychology. I minored in English. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book and only thing was I didn't realize the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction. Nonfiction is passive voice, so you don't have to create any action. When you have to go into active voice, it's a whole new ballgame. And it's been it's been a learning process that I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed with the people that my editors and everything else that have helped me so much along the way. Uh, it's been great, and I and I love writing. And uh, my first book is is Shafted, and it's uh, it starts. It's about a guy that that plays golf, and he he uh, he falls for all the wrong things. He gets uh, temptation takes over and stuff, and uh, he he actually loses his cards, and uh, and he has to figure out. A, and his manager steals his money and different things like that. So who is involved with the mafia? Yeah, uh, I don't want to give the whole book away, but it's, it's the guy has to reinvent himself, and he has to try to help his family, and it becomes something that uh, they start a company uh, called Nemesis, and 
Uh, I've written five books now in the Nemesis series. My second book has just gone to my editor. The third and fourth book are written. The fifth is halfway through. And, oh, I tell you what, you know, uh, this COVID thing that we had that was horrible for everybody else, in a way, it really never affected me too much. I didn't get it, for one thing, or might have. I don't know. I had a mild case of something could have been. But anyway, I was going to write anyway. So, uh, and I've always done something passionately. If I really loved doing something, I went ahead and went at it 100%. And so I wrote these books and, uh, everybody always kind of said I was a pretty good storyteller, but, uh, you know, and the thing about writing books is that I, I found similar to, to playing professional golf and to trying to be the best at something that you can be is that, uh, you do pretty much the same thing. There are a lot of common factors. Like, you, you know, you have to assess the situation and evaluate the situation, you got to visualize and then create. So, I mean, these are things that weren't new to me, but it just sort of in a new, uh, a new way. It wasn't a golf shot. It was a scenario. And, uh, thing you write down, you say, but you learn from it. And, uh, you, you, and I had one, I had one editor that told me something that was really special. He said, first of all, you got the soul of a writer, which, wow, which I thought nice. was great. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And, and I said, uh, Okay, so what happens if I have this thing called writer's block? He said, I don't think you ever will, but if you do, he says, sleep on it. I promise you, your, char- your characters will tell you where to go. And I'm thinking like, right. You know, this guy wrote for Hollywood and everything. I'm thinking, this is so far. These guys are, you know, that's crazy. Guess what? It's not. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and uh, they become like family. They, I mean, the McCall family is my family. Trey McCall is I mean, that's my hero. That's that's the guy, you know. And, and he's he he did a lot of really bad things in his life, but uh, but he turned it around. Uh, and uh, karma is real in these books too. People who do bad things may meet a very bad end, and vice versa. People who do things get rewarded well. So, uh, but I think it's it's fun for me to write these things. Uh, it's it's fiction, but. Uh, I think they're entertaining. That's what I want to do. I've always sort of been in the entertainment business in a way. I used to imitate T.T. And, and Gary Player's voices and Henry Longhurst and stuff, you know, and when we, I did pro-am outings, different things. So, you know, and, and, and on the golf channel, you're entertaining. So uh, right. I want my, I want, I want people to read these books to, you know, to get entertained. Uh, I think I keep their interest. I think I don't, they don't, they're not going to know who does what till the end. I'll tell you that. And I think they're going to be surprised. Ben Hogan was my mentor for 17 years. All right. And, uh, I learned a lot from Ben Hogan, a lot of things that he asked me not to share. Uh, promise made, promise kept. I'm not, I don't do that. But in these books, there's enough hints all the way through in some of the golf stuff that if people read close enough, I think, uh, they might get a little help with their golf game. Oh, there you go. Nice tease. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's not, I, I, I'm not going to lay it out as this Ben Hogan's secret. I, that's one thing that, that's the one <laughs> negative comment that I got out of Hogan's boy, that, uh, that journey and golf thing, that one guy wrote a negative thing. He says, I read the whole book and, and Mahaffey never told us, you know, what Hogan's secret was. Well, that, I'm not going to tell you what he told me, but I can hit around <laughs> enough that you ought to be able to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. 
John, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they pick up both of the books and then stay up to date with uh, all the great things you're doing? Well, uh, Hogan'sBoy.com is, is good. I mean, excuse me, Hogan's Boy at Comcast.com is a good way to do it. And uh, I'm on Amazon. Uh, so all that kind of stuff, uh, that's, how, that's how you get it. John, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. You're awesome, my friend. I love spending time with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. Anytime you want me, partner. No problem. I appreciate that very much. John, take care, my friend. Stay safe. We'll catch up again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Chris. Have a good one. Thanks, John. You too. That's the great John Mahaffey. At Hogan's Boy is how you can follow him on social media as well. He's occasionally out there on Twitter. And then the book is fantastic. Can't wait to reach out it. And there's some other questions I had for John. We just ran out of time. Hopefully uh, I get the privilege of having him back on the show again, like I say, real soon. 